You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play by Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Nobody's fact checking it, just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all that on camera, right, John? Sure, I did. All right, because the red light was not on. The podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by a play by play broadcaster. Oh, you can stick me in some kind of Italian boat because that one is Gondola. Now, from New York. Really? All the big ones are from New York. Your host, Joe Godet. It's still Joel. Yeah, he will not be able to see very well, Cotton. This is episode number 178 of PXPCast, play-by-play cast, the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. My name is Joel Gannett. I'm the television and radio play-by-play voice of the Ball State University Cardinals and a basketball play-by-play voice on CBS Sports Network. You can always find the podcast on social media at PXPCast. Give us a follow. I'm at Joel Godet or email me at J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U. Edu. Our guest last week was Spiro Didis. If you're new to the pod and have not caught that episode, do go back and give it a listen. Pete Pranico was the midweek guest last week. Episode number 176, the television voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, one of my personal favorites before that one, episode 175, with the incomparable Iron Eagle. Our guest today is a longtime listener, first-time caller, Glenn Geffner, who is both a listener and now guest of PXPCast. He is the radio play-by-play voice, along with Dave Van Horn of the Miami Marlins. And Glenn has had an interesting path. As we say so many times on this podcast, there is no one way to do this. Glenn started in the minor leagues in PR and then got into radio and then got into the major leagues in PR. And then got into radio and then joined another major league team in PR and got into radio. And then with Miami, he just started on the radio. But Glenn goes down to being multifaceted, be able to do lots of things, be good at a lot of things, be marketable as a person and put yourself in the right positions around the right people and uh, work hard and opportunities will present themselves. Glenn is from Florida. He went to college at Northwestern's Medill School. He became the radio voice of the Rochester Red Wings before moving to the San Diego Padres, the Boston Red Sox, and of course now the Miami Marlins. Throughout his career, he's worked with some incredible people as well. We'll dive into that on the podcast. Of course, Dave Van Horn, but also Jerry Coleman um, and friend of the pod, Ted Leitner in San Diego and with Joe Castiglione when he was in Boston. Interesting points of conversation with Glenn on this episode. We'll get into covering Miami when it has been difficult to win in Miami and how being a PR professional before he was in radio and then after he was in radio and then again before he was in radio, how being a PR professional influences A, how he calls a game in the first place, but B, then how he also handles situation uh, situations like what the Marlins have been going through and their build over the last couple of seasons and in some essences, how it makes it easier to handle uh, and looking beyond just a loss today for a team that lost more than 100 games last year. How do you look past that and tell the deeper, more intriguing, maybe, uh, story? And how do you get people to fall in love with the players who are growing day in and day out and the organization that's growing day in and day out so that they get invested and are fans when the youth 
comes to the major leagues and when the youth that's in the major leagues materializes as guys that can consistently win you ball games. It's a really fascinating conversation from that front. And we'll get into some other uh, pieces of Glenn's career, including covering something like the death of Jose Fernandez, uh, which is one of the harder topics to cover I think we've ever uh, delved down into on this podcast. But Glenn does a really good job of breaking down how to handle a situation like that as a person and as a broadcaster who had to go on the air uh, the next day and do his job and relay the story and emotion behind what was happening in front of him. Glenn Geffner is our guest this week on episode number 178 of PXPCast. You said that when you made it to the major leagues with San Diego for the first time, it was not the first opportunity that you thought about or that you had to make that jump. Um, so I'm curious what the other ones were and what made you wait until the one where you eventually said, this is it. You know what? I think everything in life is about timing and uh, knowing where you need to be at this moment and where maybe the best place to be is at this moment. And my journey was not maybe as direct and routine as other broadcasters' journeys because while I started out broadcasting in college, and while that was always the ultimate goal, when I started my professional career in AAA in Rochester, New York, initially I was the PR guy, and then I worked my way up to the number two broadcaster role and eventually the lead broadcaster role. And when I first got to San Diego, it was as the public relations director, and I spent time as a VP of communications in the big leagues uh, while also on the side doing some – daily and weekly television shows and filling in on play-by-play here and there, but really immersed in the day-to-day PR and communications responsibilities also. So I'd had some chances to go to the big leagues when I was in Rochester as a PR person, and it just wasn't the right time. Uh, In fact, you had the strike in 94, 95 in the middle of that. Uh, I had just met a girl in Rochester, and it didn't seem like the right time to leave. And finally, when the girl and I got engaged, it seemed like the perfect time to leave. (laughs) We went to San Diego, and uh, things worked out in the end. But initially in San Diego, I was the public relations director and uh, worked my way into the broadcast eventually, and the rest is history. But it's all about timing, and I've always been one to tell younger broadcasters, don't worry about where you're going to be three years from now or five years from now or 20 years from now. You need to immerse yourself in whatever it is you're doing today. It's the whole no job is too small mentality because you never know when somebody is going to be watching or somebody is going to be listening And in my case, it happened to be a a random night in Rochester, New York, when the Baltimore Orioles came in for an exhibition game. And I didn't know I was being scouted that night, but one of their senior VPs came in and watched me do my thing as a PR guy, came on the air with me as a broadcaster. uh, And that's a relationship that wound up eventually getting me to the major leagues uh, when some people left Baltimore and went to San Diego. And then some of those people left San Diego and went to Boston. And that's a part of the reason why I ended up with the Red Sox after the Padres. Uh, so, you know, I was never one of those people who was sending tapes out. I was never one of those people who was constantly on the phone and networking. I certainly see the value in doing all of those things, but I was fully immersed every day I was in Rochester in doing what I was doing that day and really not worrying about where I'd be down the road. And it worked out. Yeah. Be where your feet are is something that, that's something exactly. have said, uh, in that note, and it's interesting the the way that your career path went, because one of the things we talk about on this podcast all the time is there is no one way to do this. Um, and I was, you know, my my approach for it has always been 
I've wanted to do play-by-play regardless of what that meant or where I had to go. It's like I just wanted to call games. Um, but I, I see the validity, and, and if I could do it again, I almost would. I, like I thought, like maybe it would have been better to do it a different way, to go put yourself in a place and take opportunities that, that open different doors. And you've got this great path of having done PR, then getting into radio, doing PR again, then getting back into radio and and navigating your way through kind of that public relations realm. Uh, Why was that path the one that worked for you to say, like, you know what, I I can go do PR with the Padres in the big leagues, and if that's what it is, then that's what it is, but I also trust that I can get myself into a radio role or a broadcast role uh, eventually. And it truly was. If that's what it is, that's what it is. Because when I went to San Diego, I I knew in the back of my mind that I was potentially walking away from broadcasting. And I never spent a day in San Diego thinking, what if maybe I shouldn't have done this? Again, I immersed myself in what I was doing and the opportunities began to present themselves. But uh, when I came out of college at Northwestern, I went to the winter meetings like a lot of people. uh, And I was offered two single A radio jobs at the winter meetings in Nashville in December of 1989, both of the jobs wanted me to start in January. And I still had the matter of one more quarter at Northwestern to finish my degree. There was just no way I could take those jobs uh, and not finish what I put three plus years in at Northwestern. Uh, what I had done, though, at Northwestern was I did a required internship over the summer after my junior year. So I was able to graduate a quarter early, knowing that if I was going to start in baseball, I could be done in mid-March and be somewhere before opening day. So that's where my initial opportunity with Rochester came along. They were looking for an unpaid intern to start in mid-March, was able to get in there, and I literally paid my bills by making mascot appearances at $25 a pop. Uh, It's a picture that I still have on my iPhone that I often show when I speak to classes. Uh, Young and old, they all get a kick out of that. (laughs) And and like I said, it's part of doing what you got to do to pay the bills, to, to get through the day, and to navigate things. When I went to college... You know, I'm 51 years old now, so I'm maybe a generation ahead of you if you think about it. Mm. Uh, You didn't think about the possibility necessarily of being a major league play-by-play broadcaster when I was growing up in South Florida without a major league team in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, There were no radio and TV stations at my high school in those years. So I got involved as a journalist, and I worked for the student newspaper. I went to Northwestern to study journalism. And the hope was that I could follow in the footsteps of Tim Kirkjian or Peter Gammons or Steve Russian and maybe cover Major League Baseball for Sports Illustrated when Sports Illustrated was what it once was and sadly what it isn't anymore. Uh, But as soon as I got to Northwestern, I got involved with the student radio station, fall quarter, freshman year. I've been broadcasting games in my bedroom as a kid growing up with baseball cards in front of me for statistics, the game of the week on Saturday afternoons. And I said, you know what? I've done this before. I'm going to audition, get involved. And and it worked out. So uh, I got the good print journalism background in college. I, I learned how to be a reporter. I got a good overview of the world of medicine, of economics, of politics, of foreign language, of any number of things that you can apply in sports. And when that first opportunity came along, it happened to be to be the PR intern and make mascot appearances and do sales and do some community relations and uh, do everything. So I really got immersed in the business of baseball also. 
And uh, so by the time I get to San Diego and I'm now an executive, I'm doing all sorts of things that have made me a better broadcaster. I sat in the draft room every year. I watched the draft go on. Uh, when I was in Boston, I was in Theo Epstein's office in the seconds leading up to the trade deadline, literally the seconds leading up to 4 o'clock on July 31st, 2004, when he's pulling his hair out, do I pull the trigger and trade Nomar Garcia part of the Cubs? And it winds up being a move that helps the Red Sox win the World Series for the first time in 86 years. But but I was a part of things like that that all make me a better broadcaster today. Yeah, I was just going to say, what do, you, what do you see on the PR side that we don't if we're not in that role? Because even as broadcasters, sometimes you're team employees, but you're not given a level of access that maybe the, the person who's in charge of the messaging gets. Exactly. So you understand how decisions are made, why decisions are made, what priorities are when somebody says something, you know what he or she really means when he's saying, uh, you know, when we have Derek Jeter, our CEO, come into the booth and uh, have him on the air. I know the kinds of questions that Derek wants to answer. I, I know what he wants to talk about. I know what the priorities of the ball club ought to be. I've sat in on all the high level meetings with other clubs in the past where responsibilities are delegated and where people are held accountable for doing things or not doing things that they said they were going to do. Uh, so you get a full understanding of the economics of the game, of the way the calendar works and what's really important to the general manager at this time of year and at that time of year, what's important to the salespeople at this time of year, or that time of year. So you have a, a fuller understanding of everything. And again, it's an untraditional path, no question, but it's really worked out for me, and to this day, I feel like I've got a much broader understanding of everything that goes on around the game than a lot of people who didn't have some of these experiences. What is it like being in the room with Theo Epstein as he's pulling his hair out, debating whether or not to trade no more? I was very quiet. I can tell you that. <laughs> there, there was a small number of people in the room, and it was a very, very tense moment. And then ushering Theo around from uh, his office to the Nesson Studios to defend the trade or to talk about the trade, which at that time was not popular at all, and, and making sure he got on the phone with the right national people to make sure he's able to put his perspective out. Uh, it was tense. It was exciting. But it's one of those experiences that uh, you never forget. And again, it's one of those things that had I at that moment been Joe Castiglione, the radio voice of the Red Sox, I wouldn't have been in the room for. And, and I would see the finished product, but I didn't see how the sausage was made that day. And it's one of those things you never forget. It's one of those things I remember. Uh, I, I was sitting in a Major League Baseball broadcast booth at some point in time uh, before a trade deadline and someone was pulled out of a lineup and in break, one of the broadcasters looked at the other and said, this team can't be trading offense right now, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is fine opinion and probably was right. But it's interesting to have who knows what the perspective would be of the person who actually has to make that decision. Uh, so I have to inform it. I have to imagine it informs the way you, you broadcast things in, in a different light. No question. And sitting with GMs in that vein, sitting in managers' offices in that vein, what you really come to understand is there's a reason for every decision that gets made, whether it's an in-game managerial decision, whether it's a trade that's made or not made. And we may or may not know the full reason publicly, but there's always a reason. And I, I think that affects the way I might assess decisions that are made. Uh, you know, you might say, boy, why didn't Mattingly bring the lefty in, in that spot? Well, there's a pretty good chance maybe the lefty's elbow was a little bit tender today. And he didn't want the Dodgers to know that on the other dugout. He didn't announce that publicly. But you come to realize there's a reason for every single decision that's made. 
the big ones, the small ones. These guys aren't just flying from the seat of their pants. And, and I think that perspective has helped me. And uh, and what you can do is you can throw out the possibilities on there. You know, maybe the lefties, you know, he's worked three times the last four days. Maybe they want to stay away from him. Remember, he missed some time last month with an elbow problem. Maybe that's flared up a little bit again, and they want to keep him out of the ball game tonight. So you can throw those scenarios out there. Because you're thinking along those lines that there's got to be a reason for this rather than just saying, boy, Mattingly is going to give this game away by not bringing a lefty in here. Except for not bringing in Garrett Cole in, in the, the World Series. That one's <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's a different scenario, and I can't defend that one. Um, talk to me about one. So you're in the PR role. Um and you started to do, when you went to San Diego in particular, you started to do some broadcast-related work in that role. Um where in your mind did it click to say, like, 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 you don't go to that role thinking, all right, now I'm here, I can navigate my way into broadcasting this way, and maybe when a job opens up in the booth, I can wind up there. Like, how did those steps begin to fall into place where you're doing a little bit of broadcasting and then you get yourself into a point where when the booth opens up, hey, Glenn, this might be a great fit. The Padres in those years, in the late 90s, early 2000s, were run by a, a brilliant club president, Larry Lucchino, who's been very instrumental in my career, who had a right-hand man, Charles Steinberg, who's also been very instrumental in my career, who understood that you've got to get your own message out, and, and we've got to get creative and find a way to not rely on the San Diego Union Tribune to tell the stories that we want to tell, to not rely on the local TV stations to tell the stories that we want to tell. So what we decided to do internally was to create our own programming. And the Padres were partners with Cox Cable in San Diego on a television network. So you had all this time when games weren't on to put on your own programming. And Cox produced their own stuff and the Padres produced their own stuff. And what they were very smart about doing was, was making it 60% baseball, making sure you get your dessert but also 40% about what we're doing in the community and 40% about the campaign that you may not realize we're about to start to get a new ballpark built here in San Diego and, and things like that. So uh, it was 40% vegetables. It was 60% baseball stuff. We did a weekly Padres Report TV show that I hosted and reported for. We would do a daily show every day from spring training uh, at a time when most games weren't televised, at a time when not a lot of TV stations were out there shooting highlights. We were able to send highlights back so that all the local stations could put them on TV, not just in San Diego, but even across Mexico at a time when the Padres were very aggressively marketing in Mexico. Uh, and we would take people behind the scenes into the weight room, into the clubhouse, into meetings where nobody else is able to go. We got that kind of access. Mm. So, so that's how it began with a, a daily spring training show and a weekly show during the season where we got unique access to players. And I would sit down and I, I'd do an hour-long interview with Tony Gwynn. And we break it up and, and do a special show about it. Uh, and little by little, there were some opportunities to fill in on a random radio broadcast here or there, to fill on, in on some television broadcasts here and there. Uh, but I never really thought I'm making this move until what actually happened. And I haven't really told this story a lot over the years, but at the end of the 2001 season, uh, Larry Lucchino left to join John Henry in purchasing the Red Sox. Theo Epstein left, Sam Kennedy left, Charles Steinberg left. A lot of prominent people on the business side and on the baseball side left the Padres to go to the Red Sox at that time, and I had the chance to go with them. Uh, the Padres made me an offer. I couldn't refuse to stay. They realized they were losing a lot of people, and they didn't want to lose one more. 
So they said, hey, we're going to put you on the radio full time. No more PR for you. We're going to put you on the radio full time. But here's the catch. They didn't say here's the catch. But in retrospect, (laughs) I realized here's the catch. The catch is Jerry Coleman and Ted Leitner are iconic broadcasters in this town. Jerry is going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster in a few years. Ted may be one of these years. He should be. Uh, We would like you with your knowledge of the game, with your insight into the Padres and the history and your relationships, we want you to be a full-time third man in the booth, literally and figuratively wedged in between Ted and Jerry, (laughs) who had worked together for 30-plus years at that point. And quite frankly, there's some small radio booths in Major League Baseball. And I don't know how we did what we did at Wrigley Field, for example. We're now going in there with a two-man booth. There's not enough room for my partner, Dave Van Horn, and me. But literally could be the information guy. And Jerry missed a handful of games. And Ted was doing the Chargers and San Diego State football at that time. So I get to do play-by-play for maybe 20 games over the course of the year. But for the other 142, I was a full-time color guy working with two men who were absolute princes to me, could not have been better. But they didn't like it. And I didn't like it. It was uncomfortable for me. And it just didn't work. So at the end of that year, when the Red Sox came back and said, hey, you want to join us now? I said, get me on the first flight to Boston because we gave it a shot. It was fun while it lasted. When my wife and I moved out to San Diego, we fell in love with it. I thought mistakenly that we were going to be in San Diego forever. There's no better place in the world to live. It was a great time for that franchise, but things changed with ownership and it it was time to move. So I go back to Boston again, initially, uh, in a PR role, vice president of communications. Uh, and again, we start doing the same thing, same leadership. We're now doing a daily Red Sox report from spring training, a weekly Red Sox report that's airing on Nesson throughout the season, getting a chance to host and report. And again, the same sort of thing happened. Uh, I started filling in on some radio broadcasts here and there. Nesson gave me the chance to broadcast their minor league package. They do a lot of games every year with Pawtucket, the AAA affiliate, with Portland, the AA affiliate, even the little spinners who are nearby and A-ball. So I I got about maybe 25 games a year on Nesson doing that. I got a handful of games on EEI. And uh, finally had the chance to move into the booth full time there with Joe Castiglione. And, uh, you know, that was an experience I'll never be able to, um, you know, thank Joe enough for having the chance to work with him and be a part of the the call in 07 when the Red Sox won their second World Series at that point before I finally got the chance to come home to Miami. Uh, Take me back to San Diego in terms of that, not necessarily the three man booth, but just being around those two guys. uh, What did you learn most if you think back on it from uh, Ted Leitner and the, the personality that he has on the air and mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Coleman as well. Well, I'll start with Jerry. Uh, you know, Jerry at that point was late in his career and, and may not have had the same zip on his fastball. He had at one time. Still had the tremendous pipes, but Jerry was a guy who for me was influential in making me realize how hard it is to play the game. Uh, He played it at a high level on some unbelievable New York Yankees teams in the forties and fifties. And he would tell so many incredible stories about those days and about playing for Casey Stengel and and being there with Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford. Uh, But, but Jerry was a guy who, who made it clear that, you know, this is not an easy game to play and it looks a little bit slower up here in the booth than it does when you're down there playing second base as he did. Uh, So in that regard, 
uh, I remember that from Jerry. I also remember the fact that we'd ride over to the ballpark together every day. And uh, if Jerry said we're going to the park at three o'clock, you better be in the lobby at two forty-five because being on time on time meant you're about fifteen minutes late with Jerry. Uh, he just loved getting to the ballpark, and it wasn't like he had a million things to do at the ballpark at that point in his career when he got there. But he loved being at the ballpark. And even at that stage in his career, he was well into his late 70s at that time. Uh, and he had done everything on and off the field uh, to, to see somebody who, who loves and appreciates the game and being at the ballpark. And, and as as revered as he was by everybody who'd come by and visit the booth, whether it's Hank Aaron or, or whoever it might have been in whatever city you're visiting, was really neat being with Jerry. And as for Ted... Ted is this huge personality. And the first thing I learned is just get the heck out of Ted's way when he starts talking because Ted has things to say and he's going to say them. But as big a personality as Ted is, what I to this day respect the most about him is the way he deferred to Jerry. And he knew that, you know, Ted's the man of the moment in San Diego. At that time, he was doing local sports on KFMB TV. He had a talk show every day. He was a voice of the Padres, the voice of the Chargers. He was doing San Diego State football and basketball. He was like, I love Lucy. He was on the air somewhere <laughs> in the world every minute of every day. Just this huge personality, uh, Howard Cosell, like love him or hate him personality in San Diego, but everybody talked about Ted, but through all of that, he knew to the very last day of Jerry's career, this is Jerry's booth. And he deferred to Jerry and he was so good to Jerry and showed so much respect to Jerry. Uh, that's something I'll never forget uh, about Ted. And uh, it's a cool lesson, I think for all of us, no matter what level you think you might ascend to at some point, uh, there are people who've done more and are even bigger and they deserve every bit of respect that they've earned and to watch Ted and to listen him to this day, talk about Jerry, the way he does is a really cool thing. How about Joe Castiglione? Once you got to Boston, Joe is about as good a human being as you can ever imagine. You know, I would say like me, Joe does not have the John Miller, the Dave Van Horn type pipes, the classic broadcast voice, but he is so technically sound. And again, just such a good guy who is so beloved. Every time he walks into a ballpark, every time uh, he walks into a hotel, everybody knows him. The Bellmen know him and can't wait to catch up with him. Uh, he's a pro's pro, and he was so good to me. Uh, he remains a very close friend to this day. We're in pretty regular contact still and uh to see a guy who's put in as many years as he has in that market and accomplish all that he has it was as exciting to me to see him experience that world series the first one in 2004 as it was to see anybody in uniform win it because he'd had so much invested in the red sox over the decades and he's still going strong he's a great man a great friend and technically if you listen to him just such a good broadcaster what is it technically like what 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 stands out about what he does oh it's an economy of words but always having the right word it, knowing when to talk when not to talk when to let the crowd take over knowing how to get that story told well but not to take away from the game and i know it's something that you talk about on the podcast but how do you tell stories how do you wedge them in there joe has a knack for doing that uh he's got a photographic memory so having been with the Red Sox as long as he has been, something will happen in a game and, and he'll immediately think back to 1982 in Kansas City <laughs> when this exact same thing happened. 
And he just, he brings so much to the table each and every day. And the thing I'll say about Joe, and I'll say the same thing about Dave Van Horn, who I work with now with the Marlins, is these guys have been around the game a long time, but they still to this day put in the work. They put in the time. They put in the preparation. They, they love being at the ballpark. They love asking questions. They love learning and growing. Even at this point in their careers, they realize that there's more to know. There's more to share with the listener. Uh, and that was something that Joe was so good at. Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable when you think about like, have Have you ever kicked back and thought about the, the, the partners that you've had at this point in your career already? I have. I, I really have. And I'll say this. Jerry Coleman won the Frick Award. He's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Joe Castiglione has been a finalist and will win the Frick Award one of these days. And Dave Van Horn won the Frick Award in 2011. So I've been very blessed in that regard, no question. Listen, if there's one constant there, Glenn, it's it's you. That's exactly right. When is somebody <laughs> going to write that story? <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about storytelling a little bit from your perspective. And, you know, when I think about it in a baseball sense, I go back to – when I worked in Salem, Virginia, I had a conversation with Jason Benetti one day where we were listening back to a tape that that I had done from a game that we had done the night before. And he paused it and he looked at me and he goes, you can get to that better. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you forced that hook. There's mm-hmm. a, like you there. There was no like think of a different. And I, it always bothered me from the standpoint of well, what if I've got a story that's kind of a non sequitur? Like it's it's related to the guy, but it's not directly related to the game. Like I want to tell somebody's story, but there's no other way to say it other than when he walks up to the plate, let's get into his backstory a little bit. Um, and that's the thing I've always thought about. It's like, how do you creatively and naturally get into a, a line of thinking that doesn't naturally present itself? Um, so I'm curious about the way that you approach how you paint those types of pictures and how you bring in something that is uh, a little bit outside the realm of exactly what you're staring at. I think for me, if I do a self-assessment, the biggest area of growth I've made in my career as a broadcaster is realizing that there's a time and a place. And sometimes you just don't get to that time and place. Mm. Uh, And if I have something really good, I want to say about Ronald Acuna Jr. tonight, and his story is just gold. And I got to tell this story. It just might not come up tonight. But you know what? Tomorrow night's the middle game of a three-game series against <laughs> the Braves. And if I don't get it in tomorrow night, there's game three. There's the series back in Miami two weeks from now. There's next year. I literally, literally have stories in my notes that I've been carrying around for a decade or more and have never <laughs> told just because the perfect moment doesn't present itself. Now – you can look for the way to get there. Maybe it's something else that's happening in Major League Baseball tonight. You can tie in to that story, to this game, to that situation. But for me, I feel like there needs to be that hook, and you can't force it in. And there were times I know in the past I might have forced something in. And you know what I hear a lot, and I bet you hear this also, if you're listening to a baseball game, and it's the the ninth inning of a 3-3 game, you hear this story that comes out of nowhere. Maybe it's the fourth quarter of a football game. This story that just, it's a nice story, but Doesn't make sense. it's a 3-3 game. <laughs> somebody did the work. Somebody had this story to tell. And by golly, they're going to get this story in before they go off the air tonight. And now it's the ninth <laughs> inning. I better tell it now. And that drives me crazy. And you know what? That's something I probably used to do. But, but it's one of those things where, for me, it's about understanding the time and the place and what fits and what doesn't. And you know what? I might have 
unearthed this unbelievable statistic for this game. If it doesn't get on the air, you know what? Now I got Twitter, and after the game, I can tweet it out if I want to, mm-hmm. uh, or, or maybe it comes back tomorrow. But you just can't get everything in that you want to. And even though the broadcast is three to four hours most nights, and even though baseball is slower than other sports and more conducive to storytelling, you still have to know when to say when, in my opinion. Yeah, the uh, the prep blog, I feel like, is the, the way to, to go nowadays, too, where it's like, here's everything I have. If you find it interesting, right. great. Um, you might hear some of it on the air tonight, but I just felt like I wanted to put it out there. So here it is. I, I, I did that for about a year. The Marlins asked me to write a blog, and I would empty my notebook maybe after a game or after a homestand, and here are some of the things I never got to. And it was kind of liberating, and it kind of makes you feel like the work wasn't in vain. But you just have to know sometimes it's just not going to happen tonight. Uh, One of these days, you better tune in whenever the Marlins are in Philadelphia. I've got a Philadelphia story to tell that I literally have had on my 5 by 8 Phillies cards for the length of the time I've been with the Marlins. This is season number 13 now. I've been carrying this thing around. I've never gotten to it. What's on the 5 by 8 card? Um, Like how much do you fit on there? What goes on there? Uh, What gets erased to make room for something else? How does that work? I'm a preparation freak, uh, and I think it was Doc Emmerich who once said, you do all this work, and you know you're only going to use 5% of it on a given night, but you never know which 5% it's going to be, <laughs> so you have to do it all, and and I'm an absolute freak about my preparation. I go into a series – you know, tonight, if we were playing the regular schedule, we would have been hosting the LA Angels of Anaheim in game one of a two game series. And we see the angels once every three years. Uh, It's not a team quite honestly that I pay the same kind of attention to as I do to the nationals and the Mets and the Braves and the Phillies. Uh, But I would want to go into tonight's broadcast against the angels feeling as though I know everything there is to know about the angels. And if you were listening, you'd think, boy, he probably knows as much as Terry Smith does over in the angels booth about the angels. And I'm not going to use most of this stuff. But, but I need to know all the stuff that mattered. And some of that is things that, that you read over the course of the offseason, the season, and I just paste into my Angels notes that I'll reorganize right before the start of a series. Uh, I, I do – I'm one of the few broadcasters probably – I don't use media guides and I don't use game notes. I do all my own work because – Quite honestly, I don't want to have the same statistics or the same information that my partner has. I don't want to have the same stuff that the TV guys have. I, I want to decide for myself. And this probably goes back to my PR background of writing media guides and writing game notes. I know what I find interesting, mm-hmm. and I hope that the listeners will find those same things interesting. But uh, it, it's not going to be the exact same note that my partner has that he might use in the second inning. I've got something different to use in the fifth inning. Uh, so I do all the, the day-to-day number-crunching stuff, the hitting streaks, who's hot, who's cold for every player on both teams every day. Um, I, I have what I'll do at the start of a series. We're playing the Angels beginning tonight, for example. I'll have a, a pack of probably eight or ten five-by-eight cards with big-picture Angel stuff, with, with little-picture stuff that happened yesterday. Uh, and it's all kind of right there. The history of the all-time series, the Marlins and the Angels, uh, this is just the second time Mike Trout has played at Marlins Park, and the first time he, he got hurt and he missed a big chunk of the season. You know, things like that. Uh, but but at the same time, what have the Angels done so far this year? Where do they go when they leave here? I, I just want to have all that stuff. So I'm a big 5 by 8 guy, and I've also in the last couple of years become a big Post-it note guy where uh, I'll have a Post-it note for every player 
on both teams. And so when I get to the ballpark, my post-it notes are all done. And that's with all, all the batting numbers and kind of the big picture stuff, the age, the height and weight, where he's from, what he's done lately, uh, any other little nuggets, a, a bullet point here or there that I'm going to want to get to. And then when you get to the ballpark, you get the lineup. I then organize the post-it notes in the order of the batting order. So, so it's all put together there. Uh, I can flip my sheet over and on the backside, I got the guys coming off the bench and, uh, it's a lot of work. It's very time consuming. It's not one of those things where I just show up at the ballpark at six 30 and call a game, but it's work that I've decided is important for me to put in every single day. And I take a lot of pride in the fact that the Marlins finished way back in last place last year, but when we played game number one sixty two, my prep for that game on a Sunday afternoon after a Saturday night game was every bit as involved as my prep was for opening day when we were tied for first place. And again, I realized I'm not going to use most of this stuff. And what I've said a lot over the years is I would love at some point after a broadcast to go back home or go back to the hotel room and actually go through all my notes. I'm going to highlight what did I use tonight and what didn't I use tonight, which would be the majority of it, you know, and then you begin to get a sense of why am I putting in all this time on this particular (laughs) subject uh, you know, I, I do very detailed stuff on both starting pitchers every single night, our guy and their guy. Uh, now, when their guy gets knocked out of the game at the top of the first, it's all for naught. But but you do it. And I do most of it on the computer. So a lot of it's going to carry over to the next time we play that same team and face that same pitcher. And you go and you update some numbers. But these are all files that I've been working on for years and years, and they continue to grow. Uh, and, and you weed some things out over time. But uh, I'm a preparation freak. But I, again, like I talked about with the storytelling, it's one of those things where I think I've evolved a lot to understand that I'm not going to use most of the stuff. You don't force it in. Uh, and for me, numbers are great when they can tell a story, but people want to hear the anecdotal stuff more than anything. That's what I was going to say is how many iterations did all of that go through to get you it, to the point you're at now? To this day, it changes every day, uh, every year from season to season. And I spend every off season racking my brain. How can I be more efficient? heading into 2020 than I was in 2019. Uh, and we've all changed the the format of our scorebooks. And a lot of people have gone electronic now keeping score of games. What's the most efficient way to do this? Uh, so th- I mentioned the post-it notes. I had to own stock in the post-it company because if I did, I'd be a wealthy man. I, I use so many post-it notes, but that's something that I started, I think, two years ago. After all these years, uh, that's a relatively new thing for me. Uh, so it's always evolving. I, I think like anything that any of us do in any field, you want to find ways to be better, to be more efficient, to be more effective. And uh, that preparation is always evolving from year to year. You uh, were with Boston until 2007, left to go to Miami in 2008, which is obviously home for you. Um, what else? Like, Was it just a chance to go home? Was that the most appealing thing for you or um, – what else went into that decision to I, I feel like most people would be like the Red Sox. This is like the pinnacle. Of, <laughs> That's exactly right. What, That's exactly right. What changed or what did not I, I got to Boston for the 03 season. So my indoctrination of the Red Sox was the misery of Aaron Boone in game seven of the ALCS. <laughs> 04 is one of the great stories in baseball history. Coming back from three zero down against the Yankees to win the ALCS and to win the World Series the first time in 86 years. At the end of the 04 season, I was offered – a radio job by the Marlins and the Red Sox had just won the world series and things were pretty good in Boston. And they made me a nice offer. And Miami is where I grew up long before the Marlins even existed. Uh, 
I didn't apply for the job. They came to me as somebody who was from Miami and I knew some people in the organization. The Red Sox made me an offer to stay. And at the end of the day, you know, where I was in my life at that moment, we had just had our second child that year and it just didn't feel like the right time to move. And I stayed in Boston in 05, 06, 07, had the second World Series victory in 07, was on the air for that one, was doing PR in 04 when they won the first time. Um, the Marlins came back to me at the end of the 07 season. And my wife and I sat down and said, you know what? We're ready now. South Florida is an easier place to live. It's an easier place to work. I've now got two World Series rings. Whatever happens the rest of my life, uh, I've had a pretty good run. The Marlins at that time were were still pretty competitive in that era in the National League East. Um, and we just decided, you know what, from our family standpoint, there are some reasons why Boston's a complicated place to live. It's a very hard place to leave your job at the ballpark, especially. <laughs> and it, it just seems, you know, now would be a nice time to start something new. And, and we made the move down here. Unfortunately, at the time, my wife was pregnant with our third child. Uh, I, I was not the father of the year that year when I came down in February and my wife stayed in Boston with our oldest who was in school at the time, our second child who was three years old. She was pregnant with our third, had to get the first through the school year, had to sell the house, had to move all by herself while I'm down here in Miami. And I thought that will never happen again. Uh, I was not the father of the year in 2008, but it just made sense to come home, to come to a community I knew was going to be a great place to raise a family. And as time has gone on, my wife's gotten very comfortable here. Our kids are very comfortable here. And it's been a good match. And, you know, obviously on the field, there have been some challenges and there have been some uh, exciting moments and there have been some devastating moments. And the last couple of years have been tough as they go into this building process. But I really do believe in what they're trying to do on the field now. They do have a vision and a plan for the first time, maybe in the entire history of the franchise. And uh, I hope as somebody who grew up in this community dreaming that one day we'd have Major League Baseball, that this team's able to get back to the pinnacle and win another World Series. And it would be pretty cool for the hometown kid to be behind the microphone for that. This is probably where the PR person in you comes in most handy, but uh, because you can look at like and this is I think the same thing, too, as like as an athletic department employee, I look at things a little bit differently than if I was a you know media type, quote unquote, so to speak. Um the Marlins have have not been good for for lack of a better word over the last couple of seasons. Right. Uh, how do you like? How do you broadcast that? And and how do you go into it with the right mindset of knowing like, well, we got drummed again today, but well, there, there's a there's a point to where we're going here. Right. For one thing, you've got to tell the truth because once you lose your credibility as a broadcaster, you've lost everything. So part of that is having had the opportunity to sit down with the leadership of this organization multiple times and have them really lay out the blueprint for what they're trying to do. And I buy into it. And I'm not just saying that to you. I'm not just saying that on the radio. I fully understand what they're trying to do. And it's not that different from what the Nationals did at one time when they got their brains beaten in. People forget about all the 100 lost seasons there that, that got them Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg and Anthony Rendon at the top of the draft. Uh, you know, it, it's what the Cubs did. It's what the Astros did. It's what Kansas City did to a certain extent. Uh, there's no guarantee it's going to work, but they have a plan, whereas before they never really had a plan here. And for all the fun we had watching Jose Fernandez especially, and then Giancarlo Stanton and Christian Yelich and Marcelo Zuna and JT Real Muto, D. Gordon, great players all, Stanton was here for eight years 
and never had a winning season. That core was together for five years and never sniffed 500. So it wasn't like they came in and broke up the 27 Yankees. <laughs> and and in the beginning, I could say that till I was blue in my face and nobody believed me. Nobody believed that it's about having organizational depth, that it's about when a guy goes down in the big leagues, you've got somebody waiting in the wings in AAA to take his job. And there's a guy in AA coming for the guy in AAA and a guy in high A ball coming for the guy in AA. But now as time has gone on, Marlins fans have begun to understand that they see it playing out the way people said it was going to. And while certainly the National League East is not the easiest division in which to try to build something, uh, it's, for my money, easily the hardest division of baseball right now. Uh, fans see what they're doing here. They understand there's a plan that they said they would not deviate from, and they have not for one second deviated. And now you got an enormous amount of talent knocking on the door, some of which – we hope to see in the big leagues when we hope to see a 2020 season and a lot more coming in 2021 and 2022, there are better days ahead. So it helps to sell the message when you really believe in it. And honestly, I believe in it. You know, it's how hard is it to do that on a night? You know, if, if you're doing football, maybe it's yep. a little easier because there's 16 games, but you've got to like, you've got to go through that a hundred. You can, how many times can you tell that story? 162 right. times. You know what I mean? Well, like, and, and where does that become? What is the challenge is. within? Here's what it is for me. The last two years losing a ton of games were probably easier than the last two years being the voices of the Philadelphia Phillies, for example, who went into both years with yeah. sky high expectations and had disappointing years had hugely disappointing years. We went into the last couple of years knowing we were going to lose a ton of games. So as a broadcast, you say, I want to look for the small victories. I want to be able to talk about how this guy was not very good in April, but he was better in May. He was better still in June. And look at his numbers now at the all-star break. Who is this Jordan wanna... Yamamoto cat? You know, it's like, yeah, who is this kid coming up, making the <laughs> jump from double a Jordan Yamamoto and throwing seven scoreless in his first two big league starts. You get excited for things like that. And you look for the small victories. You look for the fact that no matter how many games they lost last year, 105 of them, how many times did we go to the ninth inning and have the tying man on base with two outs when the game came to an end. This team fought, and Don Mattingly deserves so much credit for that, the way they fight, the way they play hard. And at some point, that's going to begin to turn. And it starts to turn when you have more talent at the big league level. Uh, you know, And you can talk about the offense needs to be better and the bullpen needs to be better, the rotation. I mean, everything needs to be better. There's no question about that. But, but you're getting there. And so you look for the small victories day to day. Hey, we've won three series in a row. We've won four of our last six series. Uh, June is our best month of the season so far. You know, they're making progress here. We had 229 in the first 31 games of the season, but all of a sudden they're averaging 6.8 runs a game over the last 18 games. And Harold Ramirez came up from AAA, and this guy's been a real spark. You look for those stories, and you also spend more time than we've ever spent before, and certainly more time than a Red Sox broadcaster or a Yankees broadcaster would spend talking about, hey, let's check in on AAA New Orleans tonight, now in Wichita this year. Let's see what's happening in AA tonight. Uh, and you want people to start getting used to hearing the names Sixto Sanchez and George Guzman and Edward Cabrera and Monte Harrison because these are the guys who are going to be the heart and soul of this team when they're really good before too long. So, uh, you know, we spend more time than I've ever spent following day-to-day -day what's going on in the minor leagues, trying to tell those stories. Uh, and again, you just look for those small victories. And when you go into the season knowing what it's going to be, I've been around some teams that expect to win and didn't. For me, that's a lot harder 
than going into a year being realistic about the hand you've been dealt and just trying to tell those stories over the course of 162. Um, you mentioned a name in all of that, and that was Jose Fernandez. Um, and I, if, if I can, I wanted to go back to, to his story a little bit and uh-huh. how on God's green earth you show up to the ballpark and do the game the next day. Yeah, and uh, to this day, I get chills thinking about it. To this day, uh, literally not a day goes by that I don't think about Jose, uh, who I met the day he signed his first professional contract. He came in from Tampa, was at uh, at uh, the ballpark that day, and I we had a night off. I ran up to Jupiter to watch him make his Florida State League debut. A year later, he's in the big leagues. Uh, interviewed him several times and he was in the minor leagues, e- even the spring training before his first big league season, when nobody thought he had a prayer of making the big league club, he actually had an apartment in Jacksonville already to pitch a double a where he'd never spent a day, but he winds up making the major league roster and the rest is history. Um, he was a guy who you couldn't help but grow very attached to when you were around him every day. Uh, what he did on the field obviously goes without saying, uh, but the kind of guy he is, he was the, the smile on his face every day, the energy, the passion that he brought. If it didn't rub off on you, there's something wrong with you. Uh, so it was a, a Sunday morning and it was the last home weekend of the season. And we had a, another series coming up against the Mets. It was going to start Monday, then hit the road to end the year. I drove to the ballpark early on that Sunday morning, pulled into my parking spot at Marlins Park And as I always do when I get to the ballpark, before I get out of my car, I just jump on my phone real quick. Did I miss any emails? Is something happening on Twitter that I ought to get caught up on before I walk into the ballpark? And uh, that's how I got the news. And within seconds, my phone started ringing. uh, Our VP of broadcasting, you know, what do we do? Do we stay? Do we go home? Uh, He said, hey, there's not going to be a game today. Go home. Go be with your family. I sat in that parking spot at Marlins Park a spot that I literally to this day will not park in ever again. I always I'll park to the left of it or to the right of it, but not in that particular spot ever again. Uh, for probably about two hours, receiving phone calls, making phone calls, uh, got home, and my my oldest child, my son, who is not a, a touchy feely, huggy kissy kind of guy, he's a freshman in college now, <laughs> uh, but but he rushed to the door and gave me a big hug. Uh, th- this was different. This. Uh, we just did a, a show recently with Jason Stark and we were talking about Jose Fernandez. And, and I said, for me, Jose will go down as arguably the greatest what if in Major League Baseball history because he was so young and had accomplished so much already. And to have that ripped away. And obviously, we later learned that he made a horrific, horrific judgment and he cost two other people their lives also. And there's no denying that. But when we had to come back and play against the Mets the next day, play three games against the Mets, then go to D.C. to finish the season with three games, you want to talk about going through the motions for a week. Nobody in uniform or in the broadcast booth was prepared to focus on baseball. The emotion of that first night back was overwhelming. Being in the clubhouse, seeing you know major league players and coaches and managers and members of the media in tears – it was great to have everybody together at that time, but it was also, I think, very fortuitous that the season ended a week later and everybody could then go home and get away from each other and be with their families. It was a moment that changed the trajectory of this franchise entirely. And I don't think that's talked about enough. 
when you look at what's happened since and the players who were traded away and the whole building process, had Jose still been here, it would have been different. Uh, Jeffrey Laurie might not have sold the team had had Jose not passed away. Who knows? Any number of things could happen. But that next night, Dave and I had to find a way to go on the air and just try to explain what we're watching. Uh, we literally both were in tears. You could hear in our voices. We were both in tears when D. Gordon hit that leadoff home run. D. Gordon's not a home run hitter. Mm-hmm. But first he goes up to the plate uh, in Jose's stance from the right side and takes the first pitch and turns around from the left side and hit what he said is the longest home run he's ever hit in his life. Uh, to see Justin Bohr hit a triple later in that game, big lumbering first baseman hit the first triple of his major league career in that game. And you start to wonder, no matter how spiritual you may or may not be, if there's just not a higher force involved here. But to see the New York Mets come out from the first base dugout, every one of them walk across the field before the first pitch and hug all the Marlins players uh, to understand what kind of brotherhood it is in Major League Baseball, to see the Fernandez jerseys in dugouts all across Major League Baseball, and, and to see some of the other stories. Aledmus Diaz, who at the time was with the Cardinals, who had grown up two houses down from Jose in Santa Clara, Cuba. Aledmus Diaz's father gave Jose his first baseball glove and got Jose playing baseball. They were very close friends. Uh, Diaz came back to Miami for the funeral, flew back to St. Louis that night, hit a grand slam home run. And you're going to tell me there's not a higher force working here somewhere. Uh, it, I, literally, I have chills right now thinking about some of this stuff. And there to this day is not a day I don't think about Jose. Uh, and we talked about it at the time. You got to find a way to let Jose live on in the way you live your life and the way you interact with other people. And and I really feel like I've done that. I've made an effort to do that. And I think about him every day. And part of it is, what if? What if uh, he hadn't gotten on that boat? Um, do you interview players the day before, like before that game? Or, or how do you like how do you talk to players um, or anybody the day before that game to to find out what they're thinking? And, and how do you broach that subject so that you can be that? conveyor of information to the people watching and listening at home formally what the marlins did was they made a handful of people available in the interview room they didn't want to have a ton of media in the clubhouse that afternoon for obvious reasons uh so the manager spoke martin prado spoke one of the leaders of the team some of jose's other friends went into the interview room and broke down and spoke but i did spend a few minutes in the clubhouse talking to a a few prominent people in there uh just to kind of you know, we're, you're, you're part of a family here. When you travel with these guys, when you're around them every day, and sometimes, you know, what do you say? There is nothing you can say. But but just to kind of see the scene and to hear some of the whispers that, that guys give you, uh, I got enough of what I needed, but, you know, I didn't need a whole lot that day. What can you say? What could Giancarlo Stanton have said that uh, makes you understand it any better or anything? Uh, how is anybody supposed to process a loss like this? There were a couple of guys in that clubhouse who Jose had invited to go with him that night who didn't go for various reasons. And so how do you handle that? And these are stories that have been told publicly, but Marcelo Zuna could have been on that boat. JT Romuto could have been on that boat that night. And, and they, for different reasons, said, no, not tonight. You know, we've got a game tomorrow. Jose wasn't pitching the next day. Uh, Marcel had just had a baby, he wanted to get home to his wife and baby. Mm. And, uh, you know, so you don't really need to ask too many questions at that moment. But it was a hard last week of the season. Got back to spring training the next February, and it was different. And, and 
in a way, I'm not trying to justify trades that were made, but I think a lot of people in that team needed a fresh start after that experience. When you're in your early to mid twenties, you might not have had a lot of loss in your life. You know, maybe you lost some grandparents. Uh, most of these guys at that time still had their parents. Uh, you don't routinely lose brothers and sisters, but this was a brother to these guys. And uh, it, it was sad. It was a tragedy. And it was when people ask me about most memorable broadcasts, it's the broadcast I wish I never would have done, but I will always, even more than calling World Series games, think about that game first. And I don't remember what we said or how we said it. It was all just a fog, but we got a lot of nice comments about it. Uh, you know, just trying to help people process and and not even heal, but just how do we get through this together? Uh, we do by by talking about it a little bit and by sharing stories and memories and every little thing that happened in that game. I do remember this. You were able, it seemed like, to relate to Jose in some way. And uh, different players were using certain walk-up songs that meant special things to Jose. That was one of the things I talked to some guys about before the game, why they wanted to use this song tonight. And uh, it it was one of those nights that uh, changed the franchise, but that's really small potatoes compared to the way I think it changed a lot of the people who were part of that family. What's the second most memorable game you've been a part of? Probably winning a World Series in in (laughs) Boston in 2007. It's hard to beat that. Oh, four was its own animal and coming back against the Yankees and everything. But I wasn't on the air in 04. I was in 07. So uh, coming back from three games to one down to beat the Indians in the ALCS uh, and then sweeping the Rockies in the World Series, winning it in Colorado. But uh, it's pretty cool to be the guy in the clubhouse after the game with the champagne flying, asking the questions. And uh, that was certainly a night I'll never forget. Did you get doused or, or did you? I got pretty, wet. Okay. Yeah, I, I got, you know, by then, by 07, we'd been through a lot of celebrations, whether it's division clinchers or wildcard clinchers or winning the division series, the LCS, the World Series, even in 04. So with each one, you learn a little bit more. I lost an iPhone, actually, in my first celebration. Thanks a lot, Kevin Millar, <laughs> who came at me with, with an entire garbage can full of ice water and just threw it at me. And I turned and, of course, I turned left, so my right side's exposed. My iPhone's in my uh, no. right pocket, and, and there goes the phone. Uh, but uh, you know, you learn how to protect your telephone, how to protect your recorders, how to protect yourself, and you realize you're uh, on your way to the dry cleaner as soon as the game's over. But that's okay; it's worth it. <laughs> that's uh, that's incredible. Um, <laughs> I I, I want to uh, get to a technical note. Um, with you in particular in terms of how you actually call action Um, because it's one of the things I love to do with people that are uh, baseball announcers and I I always reference what what Boog said when he was on this podcast and that's you know when when he calls a game he's got to say you know like here's the pitch before the pitch is thrown Mm -hmm. because if he doesn't he's behind and from that point all is lost Um, are there things that you that are important most to you technically in terms of calling a baseball game that make you most successful? I'll start with what Boog said. I want to be ready for the pitch every time. And you can't do it if there are four or 500 pitches in the game. You're not going to bat a thousand. But I don't want to hear the crack of the bat and then four seconds later have the broadcaster tell me high fly ball, deep left field. I don't want to hear the roar of the crowd long before somebody says home run. Uh, So I want to stay as on top of the action as humanly possible. And there are a couple of ballparks, Pittsburgh and Washington, where we're so high and so far removed from the game, 
you actually, to judge the depth of fly balls and even to judge some low-line drives that might hit the ground on the infield, you've got to step back a beat or two, and that drives me crazy going into those ballparks. No matter how many years I've broadcast there, even doing nine or ten games year after year in D.C., you never get used to it. <laughs> and, and so it bothers me when I go into those parks to not be as on top of the action as I'd like to be. That, for me, is number one. It, I hate hearing a crowd go crazy and you know that somebody just hit a home run, but the broadcaster's three seconds behind. That, that just can't happen, in my opinion. So that's a great place to start. Um, it's the simplest thing in the world, but the count and the score matter. Uh, the count matters, I think, more than people realize. It, a 2-0 pitch is different than an 0-2 pitch. Yep. Uh, and, and so I'm big on the count. And I'll give the count before just about every single pitch, I think. And it's not something I consciously think about. But if I went back and listened to myself on tape, I bet I would hear myself give the count before virtually every single pitch. Uh, now more than ever, and being on radio, uh, you know, I think it's important to paint the picture. Where are the defenders? I want to be able to tell you before the pitch that there are three men on the right side of the infield. So when the little squibber goes through the left side, you know why? Because I just set you up for it because the left side is basically vacated. Uh, now more than ever, that stuff is of vital importance. Yeah. And, and those are the things. Being on top of the action and painting the picture uh, has the wind shifted. We play in a lot of ballparks where wind can be a factor. It is all of a sudden the wind shooting out to right field when it's blowing right to left the whole game until now because that might come into play here. And there's no better feeling in the world than when you set something like that up. Uh, I remember years ago – actually, this is going back to AAA even – talking about this pitcher who just came into the game. And, and last year, AA – he led the Eastern League in box, and this year he's leading the International League in box. And before he threw a pitch, he committed a balk. And there's no <laughs> better feeling than, than when you set something up like that. Uh, and that's just kind of being on top of, of the action. And uh, try, I'll go back. I'll end with Boog. He's exactly right. You want to be ready for the pitch before it leaves the pitcher's hand. Um, Glenn, if people want to find you online or social media or if they want to find the Marlins if and when games are eventually played this year, uh, how do they do so? Well, I'm on Twitter at Glenn Geffner, two N's in Glenn, two F's in Geffner. And that's my primary source of uh, interacting with people. I'm on Facebook and Instagram also, but Twitter's where I spend most of my time. And I'll mention one other thing also, mm. Joel, uh, in trying to fill the void these days, our television broadcaster, Paul Severino, and I have been doing a couple of days a week an online television show uh, with a heavy Marlins influence but with players. We had Don Mattingly on yesterday cool. with former players, with national media people. Uh, it's called Sev and Geff Live, and uh, we've got a YouTube channel, Sev and Geff Live. We're on Twitter, Sev and Geff Live as well, and uh, we'd love people for, to tune in on that. Had a great show with Mattingly yesterday, and one of the things you find out when you're looking for a silver lining at a time like this is, you know, we've been around Donnie for five years now. I grew up in the eighties watching him at the peak of his powers. Uh, and yet when we talk to him on a regular basis throughout the season, it's always about the day to day stuff. Why did you do what you did in the seventh inning last night? Tell us about the matchup you've got coming up tonight with this young right-hander. So yesterday we got to sit down with Don Mattingly and talk about the iconic Hitman poster and what went into shooting that photo and George Steinbrenner walking in on him while he was doing this photo shoot while he was hurt at spring training and off the field. And, uh, we talked about a lot of cool things like that. The, the night Sports Illustrated sat him down 
with Ted Williams and Wade Boggs to talk hitting in 1986. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, a great episode with Donnie. But it's one of those things we're trying to do to fill the time to generate some content now. So check out 7GF Live if you have the chance. Home run sculpture, yay or nay? You know what? I I love the way the park looks without it now, but I was not against it. What Thank you need you. to understand with Marlins Park <laughs> is it's Miami. It's not supposed to be Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. This is a modern, vibrant city, and the colors that were initially in Marlins Park, the home run sculpture, the architecture of the ballpark, the representative of Miami. Yeah. If you build a red brick and green steel ballpark near downtown Miami, it just doesn't work. It's a non sequitur. You need a ballpark that looks and feels and smells and tastes like Miami. And that's what Marlins Park was built to be. Now they've muted the colors. The new ownerships come in and I love the blue outfield walls. Uh, I love the way the outfield looks without the sculpture now, but I was a guy who didn't lose a lot of sleep about the home run sculpture. I think Marlins fans got it. I think folks who might tune in to one game a year, didn't understand it, but it's Miami. It's kitschy. This is not supposed to be Fenway Park or Wrigley Field, and I love Fenway Park and Wrigley Field, <laughs> but this is Miami, not Chicago or Boston. I always liked it, so I was sad to see it go. Yeah, it's I, unique. I like weird things like that. So, Well, I like when you turn on a game, you know what ballpark you're looking at, whether it's the home run sculpture yeah. or the aquariums behind the plate. There are some ballparks you might see on TV, and you're not positive where you're watching the game. And I like the fact that in certain places, you know exactly where you're watching. No, you game. got, you guys got rid of the pool this year too, right? The pool is gone. Oh. Long live the pool. Uh, that never kind of worked out the way I think they thought it might in the beginning. It's funny when they put the Clevelander out there back in 2012, initially the Marlins bullpen was right next to it in the left field corner. The visitors were on the right field side and our relievers said, we can't focus out here with all the stuff going on. <laughs> so in the middle of that first season, literally in the middle of the year, they switched the bullpens. They put the visitors out there <laughs> and, uh, yeah, now the Clevelander is gone. The pool is gone, but, uh, yeah, they've done a lot the last couple of years under the new leadership to make the ballpark an even better place to watch a game. And look, the attendance is what it is, but it's a remarkable place to watch a game. It's a great place to work. We have so many broadcasters come in year after year and tell us it's one of their favorite ballparks to work in. Great booths, easy access to the clubhouses in the field. It was very well designed. And hopefully when this team gets really good over the course of the next several years, it'll be a great baseball atmosphere. Well, Glenn, you've been uh... – more than generous with your time here. So I appreciate you coming on and, and being a guest and being a listener. And uh, thank you uh, again for, uh, for hopping on this episode. Happy to do it, Joel. Glenn Geffner is our guest here on PXP cast. My pleasure to have a, a chance to talk with him and some things about his career. I did not know. I, I was not fully aware of his PR background. And I think the perspective that he brings was fascinating. There are not a lot of broadcasters that can say they've sat in the room on trade deadline day with the team's general manager and understands the inner workings of that entire process. Like there, there's some of us that come close and maybe think we have an idea or hear it from a second hand. There are not a lot of us that sit in that room. Like I, I could be wrong, like, but I, I don't know if John Sterling is sitting with Brian Cashman as he's making trades for the Yankees at the end of the season. Um, and it's cool from Glenn's perspective to know what it's like to have been in that room and be able to, to see it through that lens and then convey that on the air. Uh, cool to talk with Glenn Geffner on episode number 178 this week. Back next week, it's PS, uh, PXP Cast. My name is Joel Gadet. The music is from Marshmallow, and we are out of time. See ya. And 
That will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.